APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On April 23rd, we recorded a video dialogue with Hadia Green-Guerrero, Lisa Van Hoos, Erica Merriweather, and Bernadette Williams-York discussing health disparities brought to the forefront by the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's that discussion. is Hadia Green-Guerrero. 2020 marks the year in which the American Physical Therapy Association rounds out a century of existence. Our focus has largely been on preserving the memories of our history as a physical therapist profession and the future we would like to embody as a profession that looks to transform society. It is important in today's discussion that we honor and note this country's history as we embark on discussing health disparities on which COVID-19 has shed a light. Knowing our history, even some of it, should help inform us of what not to repeat and how we may do better. To paraphrase a quote of Maya Angelou, when you know better, do better. I want to first pay homage and respect to the many who in this short hour we may not get get to speak on who are also disenfranchised, marginalized, and some even forgotten groups affected gravely by not only this pandemic of the new coronavirus, but U.S. health disparities, including the Native Americans who are being relegated to stay on their reservations with minimal and no COVID-19 care, Mm -hmm. the homeless who cannot shelter in place, people who live in rural communities, Latinos who according to some reports account for up to one third of COVID-19 cases, and of course the elderly. Before I further introduce our illustrious panel of doctors Van Hoos, Williams York, and Meriwether, I will share an excerpt from the book Medical Apartheid at a time when our country currently fights to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 while collecting census data, which starts around the time of the end of slavery and speaks to the time of sharecropping. The exploitative, abusive medical care of slave owners was replaced by no medical care at all for most poor Blacks, and disease and death ran rampant through Black population. However, 19th century scientific medicine bolstered by census data perpetuated the belief that Blacks' inherent inferiorities, not exposure, starvation, and neglect catalyzed by wartime privation caused their public health disaster. The censuses of the postbellum decades not only perpetuated but also expanded upon the racial libels of the 1840 documents. However, their principal foci were physical illnesses, not mental. By the time of the eighth census, that of 1860, Superintendent Joseph C. G. Kennedy was predicting the certain demise of Black Americans. By the census of 1890, the Black birth rate had fallen in relation to that of whites, Life insurance companies considered Blacks uninsurable and Black extinction was actually predicted for the year 2000. Without further ado, I'd like to encourage the audience to submit questions, comments, and resources in the chat box. If you have specific questions, please email the practice department at practice-dept. Let's start with each of our panelists taking two minutes to discuss COVID-19's impact on them, their city, and or state. 
and what health disparities they are privy to locally. I'll start with Dr. Erica Merriweather, who is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Medicine at New York University and is the director of the Inclusive Trans and Translational Research in Pain Laboratory. Her research areas include looking at widespread pain in adults with obesity, as well as the relationships between chronic pain and racial discrimination in racially and ethnic, ethnically diverse populations of adults with obesity. Then we'll ask Dr. Williams York, who is assist, Associate Professor and Program Director of the Doctor of Physical Therapy Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Williams York is a board certified geriatric specialist and has been a licensed physical therapist for over 30 years. She's a published author and has received federal funding for her research in health disparities, healthcare workforce diversity, health promotion, and aging. Who will be followed by Dr. Van Hoos, who is an associate professor and director of the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at the University of Louisiana at Monroe. Dr. Van Hoos was appointed recently to the Health Disparities and Research Subcommittees of Louisiana's COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. Dr. Merriweather, we'll start with you. Well, I just want to start by saying thank you uh, to Dr. Green Guerrero, uh, Dr. Williams York, and Dr. Van Hoos for this wonderful opportunity to have um, a moment to talk about our experiences in an authentic way. Um, so, as uh, Dr. Green Guerrero has pointed out, I am at NYU, so that means I'm in New York City, which has been uh, the global epicenter of this pandemic. Um, and so you have heard a lot of the statistics around, I'm sure, um, because our governor um, reports them almost daily. So I think people are well aware of the overall statistics. Um, I found it interesting to have to uh, try to find the disaggregated data on this. It's not as easily accessible as it is on Illinois' website, uh, which the state of Illinois. I'm from Chicago originally, so I've been following that as that, those trends as well. Um, but what New York is doing, as I'm looking at the data here, is they are disaggregating data based on fatality or in terms of fatalities. Um, so they, I can't really see a larger view of those who've been tested, those who've been infected in the same way um, as far as disaggregating the data as I see with the fatalities. So um, as of uh, midnight uh, yesterday, uh, or as updated today, um, the Hispanic population or the Hispanic race-based category. Um, they make up 29% of the population of New York City, 14% of, or 12% of New York State, but account for 34% of the fatalities. Um, and followed closely by those who, I, who are raced Black. Uh, they're 22% of the population, but 28% have uh, succumbed to the virus. Um, and 18% in New York State, respectively. 
And so what this looks like on the ground uh, for me is inaccessibility to testing is one of my biggest concerns. Um, I, I have um, had people who have experienced uh, or, or who have been diagnosed or have had symptoms of COVID-19 in my immediate family. Um, and here in New York City, the access, the access to testing has been very challenging, particularly in those areas of the city where black and brown folk live. Um, they're sending people all around to these different places and they're already symptomatic. So, you know, who wants to go from here to there? Um, and some physicians are outright saying, you know, don't come in here unless you are unless you are at death's door, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there's, you know, just from a, you know, stat standpoint, um, some of those numbers are underestimates because we can't, you know, there's just not enough access to the testing um, for the disease, let alone antibody testing that the governor has talked about rolling out in recent days. So, um, and it's unsettling. It's very unsettling and it just highlights these disparities in a way or lay, lays bare these disparities in a way that is, um, you know, questioning my own access where I'm questioning my own access to healthcare, even though I'm insured and I have an academic job. Um, if I show up, are they going to help me? <laughs> um, so I don't think this is, you know, just limited to um, economics and class. I think it's just, you know, my, you know, I'm thinking more broadly about how access has really impacted the narrative around it here in New York City anyways. Thank you, Dr. Maria Evan. And Dr. Williams-York. Yeah. Again, I'd like to say thank you for inviting us to this panel and to this novel opportunity. Um, I've been a member of the APTA, American Physical Therapy Association, for over 30 years. And it's really refreshing to see that the association has grown to the point that we as African-American women and researchers are able to highlight this particular situation, this COVID-19 situation on an APTA sponsored event. And so I think that indicates how far the association has come. And I really wanna thank Dr. Green Herrero for inviting us to this and my um, esteemed colleagues for being here with me. So with that, I am at the University of Washington. I am the program director there uh, in Seattle. And as you all know, it's basically where all of this started here in the United States. And the community in which I live is really predominantly white. And so my experience has been different. I'm also associated with the University of Washington Medical Center, which really has taken on uh, a leadership role in the news as far as uh, reporting uh, and keeping statistics. And so we have not run into, I have not experienced any lack of testing sites 
Any issues with getting enough uh, protective equipment? And I don't really see the black community on a daily basis because I live very close to the University of Washington uh, campus, which is, uh, as I said, in Seattle. And so the demographics in Seattle are a lot different than those, for example, uh, in uh, that Dr. Mary Weather talked about in New York. So we're on opposite ends of the coast and the demographics of our cities look a lot different. And so I really haven't personally known anyone who has, uh, or I should say, let me change that, personally meaning friends or family members who have been diagnosed with the uh, COVID-19, which I know is quite unusual um, because I, I'd like to hear from my other colleagues whether they have experienced the same thing. So as an African-American female in this country, that's probably uh, unusual. And I'm really thankful for that. I, I'm really, uh, I feel unfortunate uh, to be in that situation. But my situation and my experience is not the experience of most Black Americans uh, in this country. And so I'm always sensitive to that, even though I'm not uh, traveling in some of the same circles on a routine basis. It is it's pertinent for us to always keep an eye and to always be sensitive to those of us who are still experiencing lots of health disparities and who are, you know, may not have the same opportunities that those of us who are here today are have had and may not have the same health insurance and may not have the same opportunity to, to do social distancing and may not have the same opportunities to get, get on the internet and check to see what the latest news is. And so I am sensitive to that, even though that is not my personal experience. Uh, I am now in New Orleans, Louisiana. I came here because my mother was ha having a health crisis and the experience here is quite different. So their home is in a predominantly black neighborhood. I would say it's um, a working class neighborhood. And I was surprised to see so many cars on the road when I made a trip to the pharmacy, for example, for her. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it's a different environment and experience. And I really think it's because a lot of people don't have the luxuries of staying in a four bedroom home with a pool in the back and a, a little extra room for the den and a mother-in-law suite and, you know, backyard and all of those things that make homes comfortable and easy to stay. And you only live there with you and your husband or, you know, your dog. So the reality is that that is not the situation uh, and not the norm for most African-Americans. And so their experience is different. And so my guess is that, uh, and I haven't done any research on this, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that they want to get to a different environment because maybe the environment they're in is not one that, that they feel comfortable staying in for you know um, long periods of time. And so it has been a, an eye-opening experience for me to be on, um, to come from Seattle into New Orleans to experience the difference. And so I would just say that as, as leaders in the profession, we need to be cognizant of the fact that we are not representing most of the people, most of the African-Americans and people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds who are experiencing this COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, 
Doctor, you went silent. Um, Dr. Van Hoos. Mm -hmm. right. Well, greetings everyone from the Delta. Um, so I am excited. I'm going to try to make sure that I'm precise with my words because when I get excited, I just want to just ooze with, and ramble with um, excitement. Mm -hmm. But to be able to be in this conversation hosted by the APTA is just an amazing, it's one of those things where you're like, it is a dream come true. Mm -hmm. um, but I do also want to recognize those that have come before us, like the Dr. Linda Woodruff, right? Leon Anderson, the Academy of Physical Therapy, how that we have had people fighting this fight within our profession for a very long time. But it is awesome to be able to have the resources and the support of the APTA now to really be able to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and health disparity issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm excited about the fact that we've got Ground Zero, we've got what's considered the epicenter, and then we've got Louisiana that for a moment was beating out the curves of both Italy and other countries. Um, so I am excited to say that in Louisiana, we are now starting to see some plateauing where um, on average, we have about four to 500 new cases, which is still is not great, but it's better than the 11, 1200 that we were seeing um, in regards to our incidence rates. So we are optimistic about that. Um, what makes us unique is that for many rural states, for many Delta states, we have about 80% of our state is considered um, a shortage area. So an HPSA, a health profession shortage area. And about 40% of our state is considered low income in regards to shortage areas. And that to me has been one of our biggest issues, right? Is access to testing and then access to care. And in the region of Louisiana where I'm at, um, we're not close to a trauma one center, right? So there had to be a very concerted effort to make sure that we were going to have all of the manage medical management components that we needed to be able to take care of patients at that highest level of care, which is often what we see in rural America is we can provide you care, but it's often subpar care. Um, so I am been, I've been very impressed with our governor, Governor Edwards. Um, he's just been really progressive. Um, he's been a champion for all the regions. Um, but we are able to see the disparities right where we live. So I live in Monroe, Louisiana, and we have a twin, a twin city, um, West Monroe. And um, although we are a community that tries to be fairly close-knit, People are fully aware. If you need toilet paper, if you need food, if you need those things easily accessible to you, you're going to go to West Monroe. Because West mm -hmm. Monroe is where the more affluent the people of lighter hue live, right? So you're going to cross the bridge. You're going to start off in Monroe looking for supplies, but ultimately a lot of things you're going to find on the other side of the river. And so what that means, though, is that those people that lack the transportation or the resources to be able to get back and forth across the river, they're very dependent upon the kindness of others. Um, and so mm -hmm. in our area, though, we've had some community members step up, create a Facebook group where as a community person, you can say, hey, here's my need. And then someone else will try to get those items to you. 
Um, but then once again, you're very dependent upon others for your for you to be sufficient and to be able to truly follow all the CDC guidelines. But mm -hmm. the other thing that we often talk about here in Monroe is there is a significant difference in physical activity resources, right? Mm -hmm. So green spaces, parks. And yes, there are places available, but kind of as we were talking about before the um, the um, Facebook Live session started, it's, is there enough space to allow people to truly social distance? Mm -hmm. And so what I see is in the communities of black and brown people, it's not that, right? You're on really small sidewalks or you're in a green space that only has a limited capacity. So it was never the intention for the entire community to be able to be out, right? To be able to exercise all those things that we're hearing about in the literature is saying that it might prevent your risk of infection or it might attenuate the um, side effects of the infection. So it's really the tale of two cities, mm -hmm. um, but the people are really kind. It's just we need policies that support equity in our area. So. Those are my initial thoughts to talk about um, what we're seeing in regards to race demographics. There's about 4.6 million people in Louisiana, about 1.5 million of them are African-American, but we represent about 60% of the cases. Of, and that is 60% of the deaths and cases. Mm. So I think you brought up a really good point that the data right now is being presented primarily based on fatality rates. Um, we're not getting great information in regards to testing and infection rates, um, but people are talking in the community. And so we are fully aware that testing is not um, equally available for um, those brown and, and black communities here mm -hmm. in our region. But hopefully there is progress on the horizon. As um, you talked about, um, our governor now has the task, the health equity task force, and we've been charged with making some significant um, improvements towards health equity in the state. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, ladies. I want to get into a little bit of the narratives uh, behind health disparities specific to COVID-19 in this case. And one of the narratives being that around behavior and why we see the behavior that we see in people and why um, the narrative is that such that it is. One of you brought up um, people not knowing when to go to the hospital or that it was um, late in their progression of the illness when they actually seek care or if they seek care, it's hard to get. So for example, today I saw a Times article that discussed that people in New York City were in certain areas of Brooklyn were waiting so long in the progression of their illness, um, some of which didn't know that they were that sick, that by the time the ambulance came, they were dead. And even my own cousin told me that a family member, a uh, friend of hers, watched their daughter cough literally to death. Mm. Um, so I wanted to get your input um, as to why do you think we see some of these behaviors um, that people are characterizing as resistance or not wanting to go to the doctor, but what's, what really drives some of these behaviors you're seeing? Um, well, I, I'll, I'll start. I think 
when we talk about health disparities, when we when we've talked about disparities in anything, really, it's usually this deficit model um, approach. What's wrong with the people who are being affected? Like, how do we fix them instead of the systems in which they're operating? Um, and I think that people are are, you know, trying to find a narrative that's expedient, right? It has to be some kind of behavioral, um, some kind of behavioral resistance or something on the ask, you know, on the part of black and brown people because that's easy. That's that that mm-hmm. deflects from so, so many other issues um, that really complicate the picture for why these disparities exist. We've, we've taught, we've all talked about access. Um, one thing that I, I think of is, you know, folks are in home situations that are not good. So domestic violence, um, abuse, abusive behavior. Um, and some people, you know, being quarantined in a, you know, in an environment like that also presents health issues, right? Um, And then there's the essential worker, you know, who is an essential worker, who isn't, um, and state by, you know, these governors um, thinking about when to reopen their states and who's basically who's expendable. Um, so sh- we can reopen barbershops and beauty shops, but are we going to reopen golf clubs and tennis clubs? Um, so I think that, you know, to really have an authentic conversation about health disparities or disparities in anything, education, you know, economic disparities, all of that, we have to look at the fact that all of this is rooted in some form of apartheid based on race, gender, sexuality, whatever. Um, This is the foundation that these disparities sit on. Um, From, uh, you know, the the other narrative that I see being perpetuated is that, well, black and brown people have these pre-existing conditions, many of which have been exacerbated by this thing, but health disparities also contribute to those pre-existing conditions as well. Um, but to, you know, blame the victim kind of um, narrative that's going along with that, I think is inherently wrong. And it's leading to decisions as to um, how to advocate for people to enter the healthcare system sooner um, and providing the resources for them to do that so that they're not at death's door trying to go from hospital to hospital, ER to ER. And that as physical therapists, even if we're in a telehealth, um, in a telehealth kind of platform, you know, we are, we are positioned to do that. Um, I'm not as familiar with telehealth as my colleague, Dr. Van News. Um, and you can expand on this, but I see it as an opportunity to engage folks so much sooner and um, advocate for them with other healthcare professionals. Like, look, can't turn this person away. They show the symptoms, you need to get them in here. Um, 
And so that, those are just some preliminary thoughts. Yes. Dr. Van Hoof, I see you nodding. Yes, I, I was, I was. Um, because I think that conversation about individual behaviors and attitudes allows people to say, well, we're all equal, right? Because person to person, when you just say, you're a human, I'm a human, then we're all equal. So then you don't have to deal with the inequities that get layered on us by our our interpersonal relationships, by what's going on in our community, what's going on in our society, what's going on with policy, right? It's those layers above it that really kind of emphasizes the inequities. And that's what people don't want to deal with. So because that's why I started off by saying, even if we think about green space nutrition, I just need for it to be equal at this point. I need for there to be a grocery store in South Monroe that's not a convenience store, right? If you just give us something equal, not even give us, just I'm not going to say give, just don't get in the way of us getting things. Mm -hmm. Then I will be happy with that to deal with today's situation. And then we can address equity because equity would mean that you realize that actually we probably need more because we've got more disease, more conditions, more comorbidities. All those things that people want to say are individual failures. If you're going to say that, then you have to be okay with also realizing that we're going to need more to address those things. So I think it's just an easy conversation. Um, and it goes with that narrative of we are Americans and everything's equal, and it's not. So we just gonna move past that. And then I think the next part of that is there is distrust of the medical society, right? And some right. of it is perceived and some of it is actual. So I think that plays into the reason why some people are hesitant to go to the hospital. And right now you're asking people to go with no visitor, right? So, so somebody's gonna drop me off, someone who loves me, cares for me, champion, advocates for me to leave me with you. Mm -hmm. historically has not taken great care of me. So we're so the healthcare system, we are asking people to trust us. And I'm not sure that that trust has always been earned. And then you have to layer on top of this implicit bias or provider bias, right? And black and brown communities, communities from LGBTQ, um, LGBTQ subgroups, my apologies, y'all, I always messed that up. Um, communities that have disabilities. We know that provider bias is real, mm -hmm. right? And so part of the conversation about the fatality rates is how much of that is also possibly related to implicit bias or provider bias. Because some of the stories that we're hearing from patients that have been infected makes you wonder about the care and compassion that's being shown to them in the hospital. So I think there are a variety of factors that's playing into why people aren't going to the hospital as quickly as possible or why primary care providers aren't sending people in an appropriate time. Mm -hmm. You're cutting up. So Dr. Williams York, I want to hear your thoughts on this also, and maybe you can touch on it also from a, an educator standpoint with respect to provider bias. So, um, I'm hearing many, many stories, um, and I can include myself in this story where 
individuals have gone to the doctor or they've done their televisits and they've expressed whether or not they have symptoms and they've been told to go home, sometimes twice, sometimes three times. And so by the time they do get there, that that has played into it, not so much that everybody is waiting until the last minute. Some, so what can we do or where is there opportunity in education um, to provide up and coming therapists and, and existing therapists um, how to be aware of their biases and how they contribute to the health disparities that uh, we may be facing? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's an excellent question. And as the program director at the University of Washington, I one of the reasons I chose to go to the University of Washington is their openness and receptivity to increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, it's from the president down to the, the, the deans to the department level. And I felt like this was a place that really was open and receptive to being able to really open the eyes and ears of those who are not from underrepresented backgrounds uh, to the suffering and plight of those who are. And one of the things that I think we as educators can do is to make sure that throughout the curriculum in the Doctor of Physical Therapy programs, that we embed the implicit bias and why that affects not just people who are out there, but us mm -hmm. individually. We all have implicit biases. And our goal and our job is to make sure it does not affect our relationships with our patients, with inpatient care. And that if we are aware of what our biases are, then that is the first step to taking some conscious action to taking control of those biases so that they do not affect your decision making in cases like, like you have just described, because there's lots of research that shows that as healthcare providers, if you are a white affluent male, then you will be prescribed uh, medication for your pain, for example. But if you're an older African-American female, you may not get that same pain medication, even though you're experiencing the same pain level and you are noting that. And so those biases are real. And so I, there's no doubt in my mind that at, at this particular time, when our country is experiencing this COVID-19 pandemic, that those implicit biases are playing a role in the interactions that we're hearing about. Uh, hopefully, now that we're aware of, we're more aware, hopefully as educators, we can do the best we can to make sure that the next generation of healthcare providers are at least aware of their implicit biases and work to control those so that they do not affect their interaction with a patient, no matter what their socioeconomic background, what their race, gender, or how they identify, that no matter what, we treat each and every patient the same. And that's with the highest quality of care, with compassion, and with trying to do the best we can for each and every patient. We take their word for what they say and we treat their symptoms equally and it doesn't have anything to do with who they are. And if I could just add to that, 
you know, having some cultural responsiveness around our colleagues too. You know, thinking about how you're, how you are scheduling those shifts. Mm-hmm. Are you putting the black and brown folks on the front line mm-hmm. um, first? Like, oh, you take this twelve-hour shift while this person gets six. Yeah. Um, are you, yeah. you know, and and just having a an awareness that you may have colleagues who have personally been impacted, mm-hmm. um, either financially or health, their health has been impacted and not just their physical health. I think people are responding to the physical um, symptoms and the fatality around COVID-19, but people are surviving this and they have other yeah. health issues, mm-hmm. including as a provider. If you're seeing people dying, we had a, you know, 800 people die in a day. Um, how does, how do you, how do you live through that? We have a, we have a mass grave somewhere in Manhattan. Um, that'll mess somebody up. <laughs> um, and so having some, un, you know, sensitivity around that um, for our colleagues, you know, those who are an inpatient, outpatient, skilled nursing, whatever mm-hmm. settings they're in, um, it's going to be important moving forward as well. Mm-hmm. I think you bring up a great point, right? Um, because allostatic load is a is a real thing. And so regardless of if you're a black, brown, rich, poor, each of us responds to stress differently, right? And so all of us are battling um, mentally, physically, emotionally. We've had decreased socialization, mm-hmm. right? So we're going to have to deal with all the sequela that comes along with COVID-19. And I love the point of that, what you brought up about workers, right? Because as PT clinics, some of us have chosen to close. Some of us have kind of done a hybrid. Some have done just all telehealth. But we're getting ready to reopen. So as we start to reopen, as governors start to say, okay, to, you know, non-essential services within hospitals, how are you going to introduce your PT staff back into the clinic, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe consider doing some risk profiling, right? Not just saying, I'm going to pick who's going to come back, but really taking this moment to sit down with your staff, build some community, talk about what their risks are, if they want to, you know, identify those. But be strategic about how you're going to expose people to this and be sensitive to the fact that we know that there are vulnerable populations, right? And, and, and I, I would love to see more PT clinics really get intimate with the CDC um, information that's out there, right? Because the CDC has done a really good job of putting out data about who the high-risk populations are. So use that in conversations with your staff to figure out how, we, how you're going to bring people back. That was one of the things I would have loved to have seen with our use of nurses and doctors, right? Yeah. Because we kind of responded because it was happening. But if maybe if we could have said, okay, we're going to have the people with the lowest risk work first. Then after that, we're going to bring in, you know, those with moderate lift risk. Mm-hmm. Instead of just flooding it with whomever could show up, I think that might have decreased the fatality rates that we're seeing amongst health healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So one of the... Um, comments in the box had to do with resources. And so some of the comments that you've made have 
surrounded, what people have access to, what, like Dr. Van Hoos mentioned, if we could just have a grocery store or allow us to um, build what we need in our communities, what is or are the barriers that keep these communities who have things like what are mentioned in the comments, the food deserts, um, keeping them from getting the resources that they need to narrow the gap of these health disparities. It sounds like an easy uh, fix, but it hasn't happened yet Mm -mm. where we all have these same resources. So how do we get these resources to the community and what is our responsibilities as physical therapist professionals? Can I start? Absolutely. I'll keep it short. Um, Your individual choices, um, because America is a capitalist society, so businesses follow where purchasing power is. And although, and I'll speak specifically about African-Americans, African-Americans spend more money than almost any other racial or ethnic group but we spend money outside of our communities, right? And some of it is because things aren't available to us, but some of that is just choices in our own bias. So if each of us would make a decision to purchase one or two things in a underserved community or disadvantaged community, that would make a significant difference. Or if your life experience allows you to live within that community or on the border of that community, um, where higher incomes are, that's where resources go. So I think that's one thing we have to think about as PTs. Also, when I was at the University of Central Arkansas, um, I had an amazing student group who wanted to look at PT workforce. We found counties where there were no PTs living in the county or servicing the county based on their licensing data, right? As a profession, we are one of, we are a, we are a high wage earner. Yes, people gonna say, but I'm not making enough money. We know that. But <laughs> overall, you making more money than the typical US household. Yes. So could you potentially have a PT clinic that is in that area? other businesses see businesses go there, they will follow. So I think a lot of it is individual choices. Um, And then also, if you're not at a place in your life where you can do those things, can you support community gardens in that area? Can you volunteer in that area? Can you go walk in that area? Um, You know, I do have to admit, those of you that are lighter hue, if the police see you out and hanging out in an area that they consider problem areas, they're more likely to try to get resources to that area. They're going to change their community policing behaviors. So I think it's all about what individual choices are you willing to make? And some of us have to be okay with not being as comfortable as we want to be. And I want to add to that, that along with the personal responsibility, I think that it's important that we choose leaders who are going to support policies that will bring resources into those individual communities. And so, again, that's where it's important for us to to vote, to get involved in civic activities, to be visible in our community. And I think that we need to be advocates as physical therapists uh, who are either new graduates or practicing, is that we have to be really out there showing that not just by what we say, but by what we do. 
and taking an active role in your community and using your political voice to, to make decisions. So that those who, again, may not be from the same background that you are, may not look like you, may not have the same opportunities as you, but who you really can make a, a big difference to because of your, uh, the, the, the education you have, um, because of the fact that you're a professional. I mean, we as physical therapists are already, as um, Lisa just got through saying, Dr. Van Hoos said, is that we're already privileged. So no matter if we're not making quite the number as our other colleague is making, we are nowhere, we're far from being in poverty. And so we have to do what we can to show compassion for those who are not in the same situation and through no fault of their own. And I think oftentimes we wanna blame the victim, but had we been raised or born or experienced the, some of the same disadvantages and social determinants of health that we talked about neighborhood, um, types of uh, education you were exposed to? Do you have domestic violence in the house? Is there crime in your neighborhood? What opportunities and what barriers did you have to overcome to get where you are? So because most of us have not had to deal with a lot of that, uh, the physical therapy profession is still predominantly white. I believe it's 85% um, numbers close to that because our profession as a whole does not represent the way the country looks we have to really advocate for those who are from backgrounds different than ours. So I say, in addition to what Dr. Van Hoos said about personal, your personal decisions, those decisions also need to be in action in the community and with your political voice. So I've Thanks. seen, I'm sorry to um, interrupt you, Dr. green I I've seen some things in the chat, a lot about um, nutrition, and access. And so with with the collaborations I'm doing, so I, again, I, I'm interested in mechanisms of chronic pain and obesity and adult obesity. And so that puts me in close collaboration with folks who do a lot of research around social determinants of health, include and mechanisms of mm -hmm. obesity, diabetes, and all of this stuff. And some of the some of some folks are studying um, in the role of incentives, financial incentives, um, proximity to, you know, food, you know, proximity to food, deserts, parks, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're active areas of study. And um, I don't think it's as clear cut as people think. I know it's not as clearly, you know, it's not as clearly delineated as a, as people think it is. So some people, you know, there's a, there are a lot of factors that impinge on food choices that impinge on um, choices as to where to live and uh, where to work and all of this stuff that aren't simply fixed by planting a garden somewhere. Um, and so I think, the discussion, I know this discussion has to be more holistic than that um, and, and, and more interdisciplinary. And so we as physical therapists, we we draw on the things that we know um, are preventative and related to health and wellness promotion, like physical activity, um, nutrition and, and, and things like that. Um, but I think we need to 
broaden the conversations to other disciplines and to see, you know, mm-hmm. how are these, how is the intersection of these economic, psychosocial um, factors that we collectively term social determinants of health um, guiding folks' decisions. And people here at NYU are actually studying the social science of money, (laughs) Um, which I think is really interesting um, work. And uh, so I think we need to broaden our networks as physical therapists and you know, we, we like to stay in our comfort zones of knowledge, um, but we need to play in the sandbox with other people, with expertise, and with women and people of color that have this expertise, which is why I'm wearing this shirt, um, <laughs> because there have been people, as, as uh, my esteemed colleagues have said, that have been doing this work for decades and may get one citation every two years. Um, but this work has been very important and very pivotal in our understanding of health disparities, even in, in its nascent stages of our understanding. Um, and it will continue to be pivotal in, our, in the growth of our understanding of how we can, as PTs, have an intentioned and systematic way of addressing them Uh, health disparities in terms of COVID-19 and other um, conditions that we see in our practice. Um, So I would, I vociferously advocate for um, the dissemination of that knowledge from our esteemed colleagues. I I love everything that you were just saying, right? Um, Because PT has been in the business of prevention for a long time but we primarily focused on tertiary prevention. Mm -hmm. And as we evolve, right now we're doctors of physical therapy and now we're, we we really want to make sure that people understand the impact that we can have on movement and movement occurs across all levels, right? Not just at the personal level, but how can people move through their community? How can they move through society? And so that is going to require us as PTs to really step into these areas of primary and secondary prevention, which is going to require us to expand, right? To step outside of our comfort zone of our clinics, get into the public health domain, talk with some other disciplines, realize we only know what we think we know. I think what you said was right on the money. I was like, put that on. Thank you, sis. Thank you, sis. (laughs) I had to get that in there. Yeah, that was so awesome. You, Hadia, you're muted. I can't, yeah, you're muted. I can't hear you. Appreciate that, ladies. <laughs> so, unfortunately, we are winding down to the last nine minutes of our talk. And one, I want to um, really thank the audience for being so interactive. Welcome back, back to New York. <laughs> hey. And to make sure that we have enough time for each of you to go around and please um, give your contacts. For those of you who have specific questions to APTA, again, you can email practice department, practice-dept at um, apta.org. I would like each of our speakers to, again, say their name the way they would like to be contacted at all and to leave us with a nugget. And the nugget being um, some a takeaway for how we can move forward as physical therapy profession, 
professionals and an action item that you think that these are things that we could do today. And then, Lee, and then Dr. Van Hoos, when you give your sign off, can you also um, speak to the task force? Yes, ma'am. And let's start with you. Oh, Lisa. awesome. With me, Dr. Van Hoos, awesome. Yes. Um, so I want to make sure I respond to the, the question from Catherine. Um, yes. She is actually one of my previous students, so I got to speak to my tribe. <laughs> um, gentrification. Um, yes. Because as we diversify incomes in neighborhoods, um, there is always that risk of gentrification. My bias, oh, yeah. based on the literature, is that gentrification actually really kind of occurs at the local level. And so what um, Bernadette was talking about, in, Dr. York Williams, in regards to who you vote is in, vote into office is really important, right? Because if your community commits to equity, there also has to be a conversation that we are going to keep affordable housing for all, right? And that needs to be part of your community's mission. And so um, I think what happens is as developers come in, there is no one there to champion for the natives to be able to stay in their community. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's just a community commitment that has to be had. And a lot of that occurs by who your local um, offices are. But the things I want to leave with PTs, um, the nugget is as we run around saying we are doctors of physical therapy, remember the, the term doctor means to teach, right? It is physicians that heal and care and cure, not care, but cure. So are you being a teacher? Are you teaching yourself? Do you really know who is in the community that you're serving? And when we say the term community, your community, are you just thinking about your tribe or are you also thinking about the community that is feeding you, feeding the profits that come into your clinic? feeding your patient volumes, those are your people also. So do you really know the demographics and the live journey of those people in your community? And community being a larger term, not just who you go home and sleep with. So that would be my first thing is know your community of who is helping to take care of you. Then the second thing is, is by knowing your community, are you telling their story? Right. So number one, there's a ton of resources about what the social determinants of health are in the communities that you serve. Have you looked at that information and figured out how your clinic or how your practice is going to help to move um, the numbers? Because like in Louisiana, in our health improvement plan, we're doing we're making progress with nutrition. Right but we're not making great progress with increases in physical activity. So that to me is a low hanging fruit for physical therapists. So know your community, make sure you're helping to um, speak their truth, right? Be it by partnering with them, be it by knowing their data, helping come up with some type of um, action plan and an impact report to really talk about what we're doing. Those are Thank you so much. All right, I wanna give you two another opportunity. So. Dr. Williams York, and then followed by Dr. Merriweather. Well, once again, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Green Herrera, for having us on this panel and for this opportunity to share with the with the general physical therapy community. And I guess my parting words would be, you know, just consider where you're employed and maybe think about serving. You know how we go to 
you do service in another country and you might do the um, uh, a volunteer corps or something, think about maybe serving two or three of the years of your career, possibly in a medically underserved area. You know, think about the opportunities that you'll have to really learn from being, quote, on the front line and not what you hear from others and not what you read, but your personal experience. And I would say that there's really nothing that takes the place of personal interaction because it, then it no longer becomes them and they and those people. It becomes us. You become a part of that community. And the only way that happens is that if you are in that community. So I just really encourage all of you to, to really consider throughout your 40 or 50 year career that maybe you might devote two to three years at a minimum to working and serving in a community that's medically underserved and maybe with those people who are from underrepresented backgrounds or disadvantaged backgrounds. So that's the nugget I would like to leave with those of you. Thank you, Dr. Merriweather. Um, those are very esteemed nuggets. I'll um, add, since I am interested in, in pain and uh, obesity, um, I think this is an opportunity for physical therapists um, as people, as the survival rates go up, um, to be um, very conscious of, you know, health and wellness activity related activities around physical activity and, and things that we are very familiar with. Um, as you may have seen in many, um, in some of the literature, um, those that have obesity um, represent maybe a third or so of folks that have um, either contracted the virus and survived or part of the fatality. And pain is also part of the sequela in around 11 to 35% of people. These are, these are symptomologies that are well within our scope of practice that we'll likely be seeing as we see people coming off of ventilators um, and being, you know, having had ICU visits for prolonged periods of time. Um, I would, I would have a charge for the APTA to to publish some of these statistics on its website directly, and have some guidance um, around you know how to minimize and manage implicit bias and health disparities right there. So where people in whatever section, um, so that people have access to these resources. Um, and I echo what my esteemed colleagues have said. Um, particularly the practicing in underserved areas, because you may you likely be a first responder in many ways mm -hmm. um, and be in a position to advocate for the things that we've been talking about during this uh, session. So, uh, again, as to echo both of my esteemed colleagues, thank you, uh, Dr. Green Carrero. Thank you to the APTA for giving us this platform to have this discussion. And I've been watching your your chat um, comments as we've gone. So thank you all for interacting with us in this way. Thank you, ladies. So I, there's a, I've been given permission to go a teeny bit over and I see that John Volmer has asked a question about if we have any advice for new graduates when they want to help serve in these communities, however they are worried about the debt they have accrued 
um, through school. And so I'm going to start. And if you want, one of you wants to add, please feel free to do so. And to that, I would say that the community that you, that these institutions are in um, are not always um, the equivalent to what they are in practice. So your John Hopkins, your Harvard's in Boston, your Princeton Medical Centers, your NYU, your New York Presbyterian Hospital, these are all um, well-esteemed facilities mm-hmm. to work for, and they pay just as well as any place you're going to go. But they are all have something in common, and they the surrounding communities mm-hmm. are hard-hit as far as all these marginalized um, and disparities that we have spoken about today. So I don't think that working in these communities would um, detract from your being able to pay back your debt any more than it would be to work in an affluent neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And I could also piggyback that for many of like the institutions that you just spoke about or some of the grassroots organizations um, that are located in disadvantaged communities, they may qualify for the state-based loan repayment programs. A lot of times we're focused on the federal, the HRSA um, mm-hmm. repayment plans, right? And we realize that there's work being done to have physical therapy included in that. But many of the state programs um, will recognize PT, or if you're not included, you can ask for an exemption. Sometimes you have to put a little work forth to make your case, but that may also be one thing to consider. Um, and then don't forget about the fact that we need to add to the body of research as it relates to health disparities and disability and rehabilitation. So NIH also has loan repayment programs if you're doing research in that domain. So there are a lot of places to be able to get some help to deal um, with that student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And APTA does have its financial um uh, planning um, website where you can look for other resources. And there are teachers funds that also um, we as physical therapists can apply to and have our loans reimbursed as well. Mm-hmm. And I do believe uh, that the APTA is really backing the legislation, trying to get physical therapists added onto that HRSA uh, yeah. providers uh, where the student debt will be relieved. And so stay in touch with the APTA and see what they're doing and become an advocate. Put your, add your voice to the list, add your name to the list. Because the more people that are actually, the more physical therapists or physical therapist students that are signing up, that we're letting our legislators know that this is important to us, that we want to serve in these medically underserved areas, that we deserve to be counted right along with the other health providers and getting this loan repayment, the more, the stronger our voice will be. So strength is in numbers. So get involved and stay involved. I totally agree. The other thing just quickly is we also as PTs and PTAs have to do a better job of advocating for ourselves. And Mm -hmm. we have to understand the business of healthcare because in many times in disadvantaged um, areas, the facilities, the clinics are receiving an upcharge, a fee, right, for being in a critical care um, area. So therefore, they're already getting a little extra money to be there. Yes, they have some added expenses, but you will notice that your other colleagues, doctors and nurses are making more to be working in those areas. So you as a PT, you got to know what's going on, right? So some mm-hmm. of this, you got to be aware. 
of what the payment, um, the compensation practices are in the areas you're looking at going into. Mm -hmm. And medically underserved doesn't mean the ghetto. They're not. Right. They're not the same. (laughs) Can each of you leave your contact email, please? I see it's on there um, in the chat, but I certainly can. And uh, mine is York, Y-O-R-K, Burn, B-E-R-N, at uw.edu. So York Burn at uw.edu. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And we're on Twitter, iTrip Laboratory. iTrip um, on Twitter, mm-hmm. at iTrip. Um, and I'm working on other media, but that's, my, that's my, uh, one of my professional goals. <laughs> well, Dr. Lisa Van Hoos, Dr. Erica Merriweather, and Dr. Bernadette Williams York, it has been an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you. I hope that this leads to us um, collaborating as professionals towards yeah. the solutions that lead to a, seriously impacting the health disparities and not just talking about them. And with that, APTA thanks you and looks forward to our future. Thank you all so much. It's been an honor. Thank you for the opportunity. It has been an honor. And thank you for getting us together and also for the leadership at the APTA for putting this forth. So thank you. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to evolve. APTA has set up a webpage to keep you informed at www apta.org slash coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.